You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. All right, I have a question for you. What's the most difficult thing you've done physically? Like just hard physical thing? Man, it's a hard question. I would say I, I I thought about saying doing an Ironman triathlon. Uh-huh. But you know, I don't know. I trained so hard for that that I don't know if it was really the actual triathlon wasn't. I think the hard it was part. getting hazed in college. So oh, one let me hear time, about that. So I got hazed one time. Um wait, I thought they did away with that and you no, weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> no. No, no. No one no. believes that. that. Well, it, first of all, you want to get hazed. It's, I think it's an important part of the process. It's, it's part of the fun. Like, if you don't get hazed at all, yeah, you know, then yeah. you don't have any fun stories like the one I'm going to share. All right. So it was Thanksgiving. We had a football game. My sister was visiting from, she was in high school at the time. She was visiting from home, and she had a friend drive her down, and I was going to drive her back home. Gotcha. So that we could have Thanksgiving you know, as a family. Mm-hmm. The game ends at 10 o'clock or something. All right. And I go back to the dorm. And um, one of the, you know, upper classmen, uh, his name's Alex. Right. So said, important to note that you're in the Corps of Cadets now. So yeah, you, so you all live a, together. We in, all live together. This is a military um, military school. Right. Right. Yeah. So he says to me, hey, um, meet me in my room before you go anywhere. And you right? have to because he's an upper class. Because I got to listen to him. Right. right? So I go um, and I go to his room. After I'd like drop, I'd change clothes or whatever. He goes, no, come in a uh, PT gear, like physical training gear. Uh-oh. And I'm like, oh, God dang it. So I'm going to do some push-ups, whatever. Right. So I go over there and he, he has two canteens for me. Okay. One was full of cold water and one was full of hot water. <laughs> Actually, no, he made me fill them up myself. They okay. were empty. And he goes, turn the, the sink on. So okay. this is sink water. Turn the turn it on hot. Like that's bat. Like that worse than other water. That's way worse. Just what are drink, you talking about? Drinking water out of the sink. That's disgusting. People do that all do day. Do you though. drink water out of your sink? Yes. No, you don't. You have a fridge full of bottled water. Get your anyway. You, you have a right. habit of talking about the least important details okay, of the story. Go ahead. So the he, he says fill it up with hot water. Fill it up with cold water. Okay. I fill it up, and he goes, "Okay, chug them." So I chug both of them. Which is disgusting. And Which horrible. one did you do first? I don't remember. Okay. Um, and then he says, okay, cool. Do 100 push-ups. So I do 100 push-ups. And I think I'm done. And I'm like, it's really hurting my stomach because I just chugged a bunch of water. And the hot and the cold made it really just, it made yeah. it worse. And then he goes, okay, meet me at this building. And so we run across the campus to one building. And then he gets there on a bicycle. <laughs> okay. And he All says, right. you know. Let's see where this is going. Do 100 sit-ups. And then he says, meet me at this building. And then he says 200 burpees. And we kept doing that over and over and over. He never told me like, this is the plan or this is what's next. He just kept right. saying next, next, doing one more, do one more. And then so you didn't know how long this was going to go I on. I had no idea. And then finally he says, meet me at the end of Nuke Road, which okay. was five, I think it was five miles. Okay. Maybe three miles. I don't know. Several miles from our dorm. Three or five. Whatever, same thing at this point. Several miles from our dorm. And I've already been running all around campus. So I go to the end of Nuke Road and he says, you know, do a hundred pushups. I do. And he goes, all right, bye. And he left. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that was it. <laughs> and I, and I ran back and I ran back and I got there and it was, um, uh, it had been, it was like two thirty three in the morning. Uh huh. So this is like five hours or so. Uh, no, maybe it wasn't that long. It was like one or two. So it's probably all in all lasted three hours, I right. would say, because um, maybe I started at 11. Anyway, the next day, he was like, do you know how far you ran? I was like, no. He goes, you ran 17 miles, which was my class year. Oh, so okay. That was hard because I didn't know. It was hard mentally. It was hard physically. That At the time, that was the longest I had ever run. You know, I'd probably never, I'd never run more than a 10K. Yeah. And I'm doing it with doing push-ups and sit-ups. It was pretty brutal. Oh, they... Yeah, I was I was in a fraternity. We never did anything as brutal as that. I think the worst was they rounded us up in the middle of the night one night and took us out and dropped us off in our underwear, you know, to find well, our way home. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was you know, it was about as bad as it got. 
despite how difficult both of those things were, absolutely nothing compared to being a Navy SEAL. And our guest today did just that. He's Rich Devinney, a retired Navy SEAL commander who spent 20 years in the U.S. military and completed more than 13 deployments overseas. Rich was intimately involved with an extremely specialized SEAL selection process. What they would do is they would pare down a group of exceptional candidates to a small cadre of the most elite optimal performers. He also spearheaded the creation of a directorate employing a strong emphasis on physical, mental, and emotional discipline to optimize the team's performance. Since retiring from the Navy, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant at the Chapman and Company Leadership Institute and the Simon Sinek Incorporated. In 2020, Rich founded the Attributes Inc., where he currently serves as the corporation's CEO. Rich's book was released in 2021, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. We had a great time talking with Rich. We talked about developing attributes that influence your decisions, managing and overcoming autonomic arousal in your brain, making micro decisions, utilizing compartmentalization to make faster decisions. I know I learned a lot. I know that you will too. My name is Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Rich. Thanks for being here, man. Gentlemen, thanks. Hey, Rich. Thanks welcome. for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, not only have someone who can kick my ass, but who can kick Sean's ass too. <laughs> Rich could probably do it both at the same time. Well, maybe, but you know, I'm I'm a former I'm a former Navy SEAL. I'm not I'm not an active one anymore. So, uh, uh, Andy's humble. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> no, thanks for having me, though. It's good to, uh, good to meet you guys. So, when did you go into SEAL training? Gosh, I, I went into SEAL training in 1996, uh, coming out of uh, and, uh, Navy ROTC at Purdue University, graduated, um, got commissioned as an officer as an ensign in the U.S. Navy, and went straight to BUDS, which is Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL training there in San Diego. And uh, yeah, 96, and graduated, uh, what, spring, went there in 96, yes, graduated spring 98, and then, you know, started my career, so. What possessed you to do that? What was the lead up in your life to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go do probably the hardest thing that I can possibly think yeah, of? Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up wanting to be a pilot, a Navy pilot, specifically. Uh, my, I have a twin brother. Uh, we, so my dad, uh, my dad was a private pilot, so he'd take us flying on the weekends, and we loved flying. And my brother and I, my twin brother and I wanted to be jet pilots. And so we were thinking this was, I mean, this is pre, this was like six or seven years old. And we had a cousin who had, who was a Navy pilot. And he was like, well, in the Navy, you get to land on ships. And we're like, wow, that's, there's nothing better. I mean, there's, that's gotta be the hardest thing. So we both were bent on being Navy pilots. And this was before, this was pre Top Gun. (laughs) So Top Gun only made it, only solidified it. But it was a. Uh, it was actually the first Gulf War. So in the in the in 1990ish, um, I I happened upon an article in a Newsweek magazine that kind of outlined a bunch of special operators, and it, so it outlined like the Air Force, PJs, uh, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, uh, Rangers, things like that. And I noticed what I noticed in this article was about I, I would guess it was six or seven pages, but there were probably peppered throughout it probably 20, 25 pictures of guys in, in all different environments. So some guys in snow, some guys underwater, some guys in doing skydiving, climbing mountains and jungle. And what I noticed about the 25 pictures were, were like about 20 of them were all Navy SEALs, but they were just all in different environments. And I was like, wow, these guys seem pretty cool. They seem like they do everything. The fact that they were like waterborne really keyed me. And I, we grew, I grew up in Connecticut right on the water. And I, so I loved everything about the water and being underwater. And so so I kind of said, well, I might want to do this, ended up in ROTC. And really, my decision point ultimately, as I was getting ready to graduate was I, I knew I could be a pilot, but wanted to, I didn't know, I wanted, I never wanted to wonder if I could be a Navy SEAL. So I just decided to go for it. And what's interesting is back then, very few people knew what Navy SEALs were. I mean, we were kind of, it was really just, it was hidden. We were kind of the black sheep of all the services. Uh, and so, uh, but I remember there was a, there was a commercial that came out it was either mid or late nineties. Um, and I think Spike Lee directed it, but it was, uh, it was, a it was basically a, a picture of a beach at night and there was waves crashing on the, on the shoreline. 
and then it went black. And then when it came back, there were footprints in the sands, like coming out of the water. And then the waves crashed over the footprints and the footprints disappeared. And then it just said U.S. Navy SEALs. And I was like, that's that's what I want to be. Nice. I want to be, be an invisible ghost. You know, I want to just be someone who comes. Yeah. And, yeah. and that and that's what that's what really uh, was the impetus. And so I find myself on the beaches of Coronado and SEAL training. And, um, and unfortunately, I made it through. <laughs> Well, and fortunately, you made that decision to join. Like, I think you, you get this a lot as a serviceman. Thank you for your service. But thank you more for the crazy people like you who go, you know what, I want to do not only risk my life, but I want to do the hardest crap that this organization uh, is going to offer yeah. me. Um, it's interesting hearing you kind of walk through the decision on becoming a SEAL. Yeah. You started off with pilot because it was the hardest thing. It was. It was. But let me. Uh, let me, right. let me <laughs> I want to. What's the hardest one? Oh, wait, that's harder. Let me go do that. Instead. It is. Uh, but I want to. You know, it's funny you should say that because I want to. I want to give a nod here. I growing up again, I was in Connecticut. I was on the water. And one of my jobs was a, I worked at a marina and uh, I, you know, drive people out to their boats. I'd fill, 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 uh, fill boats up with the gas yeah. and things like that. Well, the the night security guard. That I was at worked at the Marine. It was an old guy, and he was a, a World War II Marine veteran, you know, a veteran of World War II. So he was like he was on the beaches of Iwo Jima, and we'd sit down with this guy, and this guy would tell us stories of like insane stuff, like you know, charging the lines, and and he, I mean he he I remember him telling me a story. He said you know I remember being at a it, it was a line of cover, and there was a there was a, a distance of about fifty yards across this open beach area to another line of cover. And he said, well, I'm sitting there and the first wave went and almost all of them got mowed down by, by enemy gunfire. And he said, I was the second wave. And I, and I thought I was sitting there, I was thinking, and so we, I, mean, I joke about this because it's like, I, you know, we talk about doing the hardest stuff and being brave. It's like, I said to myself, I never want to, I want to be the guy who sneaks up like behind the machine gun. <laughs> right. you know, okay. They don't know yeah, to shoot at me because they can't see me. Before he right. ever shoots at me. Right. So, so there's a, I mean, there's there's definitely a level of courage um, in being a special operator, but the you know courage comes in so many different forms, and and you know yes, it's badass, but I I really wanted to be a ghost. I wanted to sneak around. I wanted to be invisible, and that comes with a certain type of courage because again, you're probably most of the times we do that, you're on your own, and there's no backup. You know, so if you do get caught, you're you're pretty much you know done for. But uh, but I tell you what, the 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 service members, men and women who I've met and have served uh, holistically come to the game with such a, a level of courage that it's just hard not to look at everybody in that business as, as heroes. Uh, so, so just hats off to everybody. Is that pretty normal to go straight in from, uh, from college into, into SEALs? So what were you like 22, 23, something like that? It is that? actually, uh, so, uh, the, the enlisted path. So most people may not know this may or may not know most Navy SEALs are enlisted. Um, and so the enlisted pathway for SEALs is they usually join the Navy and, and if they get if they pass the test and they get selected, they go straight to SEAL training. There are certain cases where guys will laterally transfer from other parts of the Navy, um, but the officer pathway is typically straight from your commissioning source, whether it be the academy, ROTC, or OCS, to go straight to SEAL training. Because if you don't make it, then those officers get put into a different service selection, um, and they you, and you don't get another chance to come back. So so it's really you know we get one one shot and that's it. But uh, typical that you go straight there and then spend your career in that field. You got involved in selection or in recruiting in the SEAL teams. Is that sort of how your career progressed? Yeah, well, actually it was, it was later on. So I, you know, I did, I did a, my first tour in Hawaii at a, at a command in Hawaii, moved to the East coast right in, in 2001. So nine 11 hit, I was at SEAL team two. And then right around 2004, 2005, I got selected for one of our very, very specialized SEAL commands, a uh, very famous one. Now we, we weren't famous before, but but, you know, we're the guys who got Bin Laden and Captain Phillips. So I got selected for that, went there and spent pretty much my whole career there. And while I was there, one of the jobs I had was to run selection and assessment for that command. And that command was interesting because what we did there was we basically uh, got applicants from all the other SEAL teams. Um, and they were pretty much the top, you know, the top performers. They had to get they had to come with recommendations. They had to have experience get them to come to our command. And then we put them through our own nine month selection course and, um, and only about a 50% make it. So again, 50% attrition of the top dudes. Um, and so I was in charge of that right. assessment selection. One of the things that I did while I was there is I had to really kind of dive into and try to articulate what was going on there and how we were, how we were doing that and try to 
really, uh, in some cases, reshape it. So that was one of my my most interesting and I think most enjoyable jobs. You know, when you see selection drop off like that, you know, or attrition rather in the selection process, one way to look at it, I would think would be, well, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a crucible where that, you know, that brings out the best of the best. How do you know if you're screening on the right thing? Because I mean, in other words, if you go into a situation, it's just horrible, bad leadership. The best people are going to leave and the worst people are going to stay. Yeah. Right. So how do you know when you're going through and doing all the screening and that you're screening for the right? Yeah. Things? Well, this is what I had to deconstruct and I had to look at performance differently. And a lot of times we get we get seduced when we look at when we look at or try to define performance, we get seduced by what's visible and what's visible are often those those skills. You know, how well does someone do this or do that or shoot a gun or, or skydive in the seal case? And what I needed to, to really kind of dive into and deconstruct was that, in fact, that's not what we were looking at. We were looking at for the we were looking for these attributes, these hidden qualities, these unique things about about a human being that tells us, can this guy do this? Can, does this guy have what it takes to do this job? These attributes and a couple stories that I can kind of relate. First of all, when I you know during so during basic SEAL training, you know, you spend hundreds of hours running around with big heavy boats on your head. You have spent hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound right. telephone poles and running around with those things and freezing in the surf zone. At the time when I took over this training, I had been a SEAL for what, almost 14 years. I had done hundreds of combat missions up to that point, thousands of training evolutions. And I can tell you never on one did I ever carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300 pound telephone. Pole. Right. <laughs> so I knew what they were doing to us in that training wasn't teaching us those skills to be Navy SEALs. They were basically teasing out these attributes. And so I kind of really had to start thinking, okay, how do we start looking for these attributes in, in, instead of these skills? The other story I'll tell that kind of really hammered this home for me was is a kind of a story that comes from uh, before I went to SEAL training. So back in, in the 90s, one of the first things you had to do when you showed up to Navy SEAL training, and this is buds now, um, was to swim 50 meters. So you jump in the pool, you swim 25 meters to one end, and then 25 meters back. The story goes, this kid shows up and um, and it's his turn to swim and he jumps in the pool and when he jumps in, he sinks to the bottom immediately. And then he just starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one side and then walks across the bottom of the pool to the other side. He comes up, he's gasping for air, nearly drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid who's still out of breath looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And the instructor pauses and looks at him for a second and says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim. Right? And so the question is, why does the instructor do that? Or, or did he do that? It's because the instructor knew that this if this kid had those attributes, those qualities, those balls, if you will, to show up to Navy SEAL training and he didn't know how to swim, he had everything inside of him that we needed for him to be a Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming was the easy part. And so, and so what I had to do was kind of start to ask ourselves or help us ask ourselves, okay, take away the skills. What are we actually looking for? What are the all these yeah. are actually looking for in candidates, situation awareness, task switching, uh, resilience, adaptability. And then where can we start to see those in our training pipeline? You can see these attributes most viscerally during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty, which made our our crucible great because everything about what we were doing was throwing guys into stress, challenge, and uncertainty. So these attributes really, as long as we started looking for them, we could see them very viscerally and then begin to say, okay, that dude even though he may not be the best shot, which by the way, when I went through selection, I was one of the worst shots, right? Even though that dude might not be the best shot, that dude has everything we need, right? So we can always teach him how to shoot, but that, that dude has everything we need to, to, to have him be a part of this team. And so this is when you start getting to that distinction between attributes and skills. It's interesting that um, an organization could be as successful as the SEALs without, from the get-go, being consciously aware of the attributes requ- required for success in that organization. Yeah. And that's true with anything. It's true with um, life. It's true with companies. Like there are things that are required to be successful that we figure out along the way. And you kind of, you kind of know mm-hmm. them before you're conscious of knowing them. Right. So the, the seals were screening for these attributes without necessarily knowing that they're screening for these. attributes. Yes, 100%. That's fascinating. Yeah, I call, I actually call it unconscious genius. Right. And this was, uh, you know, Draper Kaufman, who was the, f- the father of all, of all the Navy SEALs, he was he was tasked in the in the forties, and well, it was forty three or so, to create a uh, naval combat demolition unit. These guys basically, when they were trying to start yeah. to plan the amphibious invasion, which they knew they were planning D Day, they knew 
based on previous uh, big failures of World War One Gallipoli to be the one of the biggest big examples that they knew they knew they needed guys who could swim ashore prior to the invasion and map out pathways, destroy obstacles, destroy mines and things like that so that the allies could come ashore. And so Draper Coffin, who had put together this an EOD school previously, he was tapped to do this and and he and he didn't have a lot of time. And so basically what he did is he said, okay, I'm going to get a bunch of dudes and I'm going to start training by having them go through the hardest week I can possibly imagine, um, where he basically, they started on a Sunday evening and uh, and they went until Friday afternoon and they didn't sleep at all. I mean, they, they slept for two hours, maybe the whole week. They did combat simulations. Um, uh, I apologize for that noise. I live near a jet base, by the way. So you hear what you hear right now are Navy F-18s taking off. So, <laughs> so of course you do. <laughs> why would you Why would you live anywhere right. else? Um, so uh, so he, he created this uh, this week, uh, ultimately nicknamed Hell Week. And um, and when he did this, uh, he, he conducted no exams, no tests, nothing. There was no pass fail. The only criteria was that someone had to stay or go. And it was that person's decision. Would he quit or would he stay? And 90% of the guys quit. And so so in in, in Kaufman's unconscious genius, he created this, this environmental event. And this is of, of deep uncertainty, deep challenge, deep stress to tease out these attributes. Um, and that's ultimately what, you know, what ushered in, you know, the, the NCDUs became the UDTs, the underwater demolition teams. And then from the underwater demolition teams came the Navy SEALs. And to this day, Hell Week is still the crucible. Every single Navy SEAL you'll ever meet or UDT or any of the old guys, we all have that 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 commonality as we go through that Hell Week and SEAL training holistically. But uh, but that is the crucible and, and those attributes are teased out. And so so it was it was a, a, a flicker of unconscious genius there. Is that week near the beginning or the end of? of yeah, that's a, it's right now. It's the fifth week of training. So, uh, so guys will start. They'll do okay. a bunch of stuff, and then week five you'll go through Hell Week. And I, if I recall correctly, it was fifth week even when I went through. And then after that, so and, and buds is really three phases. First phase where you have you know uh, you know you have four weeks, then you have Hell Week, and then you have a couple more weeks of of stuff. Second phase is all diving and uh, and underwater stuff, and then third phase is all land warfare, demolition, and weaponeering and things like that. So so that's the kind of the sequence and has been for, for many years. So after leaving the Navy, you you focused a lot on the working on these attributes still and bringing that to the rest of the yeah. world. What was that like? I mean, obviously you were aware of the attributes that were necessary for success when you were in the Navy. How did you go about translating that to the general yeah, public? Yeah, it it's, it's one of the things I love to do the most, and that's taking experiences that I've had, especially in that environment, and kind of ubiquitizing them into, uh, into everyday stuff. And, and with the attributes, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't as difficult as, as one would imagine because what the attributes tell us is, is how we show up, what our, what our elemental human performance is. In other words, I'm really fascinated with human performance, but I'm really fascinated with human performance at an elemental level. In, in other words, who are we at our most raw, right? Because again, we all hear it's like it's it's only during times of deep stress and challenge and, and fear and things that that the real us shows up. And I'm always like, well, okay, who's the real us? Because if you if we know who the real yeah. us is, now we know how we're going to operate in stress, challenge, and certainty. Now you know when what people are made of and you know how to create the highest performing teams. Um, and so for me, that meant getting down to those elemental factors. And these attributes are very elemental. They, they, they come before attributes come before everything. Attributes inform our values, which informs our uh, helps helps inform our belief systems and our emotions, and our personalities. Right. These are all developed. But these attributes are very elemental because we can we can see them in very small children. Right. All of us who are parents know that there are some small kids who are patient <laughs> and there are some small yeah. kids who are impatient. Right. Or adaptable or not adaptable. Yeah. So. So certainly there's a nature nurture because environments can can do matter. But but uh, what I did is I said, well, listen, let me take these attributes I worked on at the teams in the teams and let me just talk about optimal performance. And how do we how do we as humans perform optimally? What does that take from an attribute perspective and talk about that? And then, of course, it really translated and translates to this day to the work we do with businesses, because what we can do now is we go into teams and organizations and say we help them figure out what attributes they need for their organization, for their team, because that list is going to look a little different. Again, it's subjective, right? The, the list yeah. of attributes that make up a great SEAL team is going to look different than a list of attributes that makes up a great accounting team or sales team or surgical team. So, for sure. so we can help and use these same processes to help organizations, teams figure out exactly what they're looking for on their teams. And that's been really fun. 
Yeah. I was laughing when you were talking about children who have these attributes. So uh, my jujitsu coach, he was a former UFC fighter and he has four kids. The youngest child, um, I think I met this little boy when he was like two and he was the toughest of all of the kids at this gym. And he would just run around. He'd bang his head into a bench, get a cut in his forehead. He would never cry. He just, get, I've never seen that kid cry. And I've seen him like, you know, bust up his whole body, head to yeah. toe. Um, he'll just dive off things. Like he's just trying to hurt himself. And it's funny because you're like, that's what everybody in the gym, we just imagine that's what our coach was like when he was a little kid. Like you have to, you have to be yeah. that way, you know, to go willingly get punched in the face for yeah. a living. You got to be the type of kid who's willing to, take a beating and not yeah, cry about it. 100%. And he was so young that it's like, you can't possibly have taught this That's kid right. to behave That's this right. way. There's no way. He just has it or he doesn't. Uh, and we're not all going to be fighters. That's fine. You know, but those of us who are going to be fighters, you better hope you were like that as a kid. <laughs> I, would, I would always think we're all <laughs> fighters, but we fight in different ways, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. 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 And it depends on uh, how we... Not all of us yeah, fight depends on how we show with up. fists. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the with... With, with the the attribute work that you're doing, you know, you're talking about how it informs values and informs emotions. It almost sounds like it sounds very positive in a sense that, okay, hey, if I can understand this, then I know um, how to best utilize my own God-given abilities. It, it also sounds a little bit hopeless if you don't have those abilities <laughs> or those attributes, you know, so what do you do if you're in a position where you're running a company or a team yeah. or what have you and you go, you know what, maybe I don't have the attributes to be the yeah, leader. Yeah, I like to describe us as automobiles and it's not just because it's kind of like the movie Cars. And it's not just because my kids made me watch Cars a thousand times. It's actually a good movie, but it's because it's it's very relatable to kind of us as human beings. We're all automobiles, but we all are different types. Some of us are Jeeps, some of us are SUVs, some of us are Ferraris, right? And the Ferrari, and there's no judgment there because the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, and the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. Okay, um, but yeah. we have to uh, lift our hood and figure out what engine we're running with because we may be a Jeep that's trying to run on a Ferrari track. Okay, so so that so that's mm-hmm. the first thing. First of all, we, there's no judgment with how we show up. Chances are, if you find yourself in a position where you're on a team or you've created a team, and suddenly you're you're in charge of a team, chances are you probably already have a lot of the attributes that got you there in the first place. Um, there might be a couple you need to develop, but that's okay. Developing an attribute is possible if you're low on one. And again, I want to just make sure I clarify for the audience that all of us are born with all of these attributes. Okay. So it's not like we don't have them. All of us have all of them. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. So so I usually use ad- adaptability as an example. So if, if 10 is high and one is low, I would I would probably be a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it, right? Someone else might be a level three, which means the same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow and roll with it. They're still adaptable because human beings are, but there's just more friction with them. So so if we were kind of line all of these attributes on a wall like dimmer switches, all of our dimmer switch settings would be different. That Those settings start to speak to how we perform, especially during stress uncertainty. Mm. And chances okay. are, and, and oh, by the way, it's not to have a lot of all of them is also not good. Too much and too little of each one can be bad, right? In other words, if you have if you have way too much courage, it probably means you're not assessing risk properly. If you have way too much adaptability, it probably means you're a limp noodle, right? So so uh, and 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 low is the same thing. But but the idea is um, even in specific niches, right? Uh, having too much of one attribute might be detrimental to your specific niche. Uh, I usually use the stand-up comic as a as an example of this, a stand-up comic with with too much empathy is not going to be a good stand-up comic, right? Because how can you find funny at a funeral if you have too much empathy, all right? So you have to... Yeah. So, so, are people finding funny at a funeral? Comics are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I remember, that's why I guess that's why yeah, I'm not I, I remember uh, actually um, <laughs> listening to a couple of comics talking and they were talking about uh, the fact that when they, when they hear that someone has died, even one of their famous friends, right? Um... They don't, no one else knows this, but the, but the, in the first 10 seconds, they have like the first three jokes. Like, like they immediately think of jokes, right? So, so, and even, I would even say as a Navy SEAL, too much empathy as a Navy SEAL, when you go to combat actually would have been detrimental to me doing my job, right? So I had to, so what everybody has to understand is that if you're in a position, first of all, you have to look at what got you there. What got you there probably are some of the attributes that, 
make you need to be there or should be there anyway, you're probably looking at maybe developing one or two. And so developing an attribute is a little bit more difficult. Like you can't, you can't do it the same way you could do a skill. And the way I'll, I'll again, I'll explain this is that if you want to, if you want to determine whether it's a skill or an attribute, is you ask yourself this question: Can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So the so the example would be both of you say, Rich, uh, we want to learn how to shoot a pistol and uh, hit a bullseye every time, right? I could take both of you to the range and teach you how to do that within two hours, okay? That is a skill, okay? Or you say, Rich, we want to learn how to be more patient, all right? I can't teach you how to be more patient, right? So to develop an attribute takes three criteria. First is you need to know, you need to know you need to develop it, right? So you need to know uh, knowledge. Second is motivation. You need to want to develop it. And then third is a willingness to deliberately step into environments of discomfort so that you can you can test and tease that attribute out, right? So in other words, if someone wants to develop their patience, they have to go find environments that test and tease their patience, whatever that looks like for them, okay? It could be go deliberately drive in traffic. It could be, I'm going to stand in the longest line at the grocery store. I often say have kids, that'll develop your patience, right? So, um, but you have to find those environments that tease and develop that attribute and you will then develop it. But the good news is, God, I cringed at waiting in line at the grocery <laughs> yeah, store. Yeah, it, it, I'll put I'll put stuff back on the shelf and go home. That's oh, just, uh, I've done that. Oh, uh, yeah, screw yeah, it. I don't do that. Do you ever? We're we're the least patient people. You oh, might talk I, to. if if I'm at a gas station and I put my card in and it says go see the cashier, <laughs> I just drive away. I just <laughs> I didn't need gas that yeah. bad. No, I'm just I'll just yeah. go well, somewhere. It'll interesting, happen later. What's interesting is in the book I talk about uh, the kind of there's a set of attributes you know the first the first 23 or 22 or so are ones that in general being a little bit higher on is a good thing right but then there were there were a few there yeah. that i talked about that when i did the when i did the mouth math and i put them through my mental algorithm it didn't come out the same way patience was one of those things and the idea was there are highly successful patient people and they're highly successful inpatient people so in other words being highly impatient isn't a bad thing, and being highly patient isn't a bad thing. You could you could be either one. Um, and so, there's a difference in being rude and impatient. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah, and I, I think people people get that get that confused yeah. a lot. Like when people tell me to be more patient, it frustrates yeah. the heck out of me because usually <laughs> it's it's at first of all it's like telling someone to chill oh, out. Yeah, it's yeah. like no, I'm not mad. Um, you know, but I'm pissed off. Like you tell me to be patient. 99% of the time, like we're on the same mm-hmm. boat. It's like you and I, Rich, we're, we're driving through the same traffic or we're dealing with the same thing together. And my impatience is like expressed towards something that could easily be solved, right? Like you have a gas station, you want me to spend money here and your card system doesn't yes. work. Well, yeah. I'm impatient. Yeah. I'm impatient yeah. because it could be better. You're than impatient this. with inefficiency. I'm impatient yeah. well, with inefficiency. Thing. I would actually, I've had this conversation. I had to think deeply about this because I am a patient person, but I am guilty of exactly what you're talking about. And so the question became when I was talking about this and kind of dissecting is it's, it's really a frustration that we're feeling with inefficiency. I'm not sure if that's patience yes. or I'm not sure if that's impatience as much as it is frustration because Mm-hmm. Patience is really, are you able to delay gratification for the period of which you need to, to accomplish something or whatever? Can you delay gratification in kind of certain environments or do you need it kind of right now? Is that, what, what's that, what's that, what does that feel like for you? Okay. I'm someone who can typically, I'm okay delaying gratification. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. hurt me. My wife, on the other hand, it, she finds it hard to delay gratification, right? So now the cool thing is, when you have a team, the best teams actually have both polarities on them because, because the, when you have a team environment in a, in, in a certain situation, patience might be required. So the person who's patient steps up and takes lead, whereas in other environments, impatience might require. So the person who's impatient steps up to take lead. So, so it's really more about those tendencies because again, I think like I, my wife jokes, he's like, well, you're not patient at all, especially when you're driving. And it's true. But, I, but when I thought about it, it's because I get frustrated when I'm driving because I see people not paying attention and that's delaying my progress, right? So so that's not necessarily yeah. impatience as much as it is frustration. Um, but this is why attribute stuff really fascinates me because there's so many nuances here and when we really start to dive into it. We start to understand our performance at levels that we never really did before. And that's that's really that keys me in right you know, really incredibly. I'm, I'm going to get excited about that stuff. So uh, speaking of the nuances of those, I, I would think that one of the things that makes the SEALs successful 
is it's it's not just the the physicality of it. And, and if it were, we would just have a CrossFit competition, take the top 100 competitors and go, you guys are Navy SEALs. But there's something about thinking differently, thinking in the face of uncertainty. And it, it inherent in any sort of decision, there's an element of that uncertainty. And you've got to be able to deal with that uncertainty and that stress and, and volatility and so forth. What have you noticed about the Navy SEALs and how they're making decisions that are going to be superior or allowing them to be successful? Yeah, what a great question. I'll just say that it's, it's almost not at all about physicality, right? I mean, because, and this is where, this is where athletes get torn up and, and we have, I've, you know, even when I went through, but division one athletes will come to SEAL training. They'll be the first ones to quit because what they do at SEAL training is they take you down to zero and then they say, okay, now go or even sub-zero and say, now go. And so it's really about, it's all about the mental game. And, and I'm glad you, you brought that up, Sean, because, because it's actually, <laughs> this is my, this is going to be my second book. I'm, I'm, I'm starting it right now, but, but Navy SEALs are what I've always described them to be. In, in other words, it's not about shooting. It's not about skydiving. We are masters of uncertainty. And that means we are individuals and teams that can drop into deeply complex environments and figure it out and perform, okay? And the way we do that is because we have a process by which we can calm our autonomic arousal systems. We can start looking at our situation and environment. We can start deconstructing. We start chunking known elements and start moving through step-by-step an environment that's deeply uncertain. And this is what masters of uncertainty do. And I've started to break down these things into steps in terms of, because everybody can be masters, can become a master of uncertainty. It's really about understanding our own makeup and our own physiology. But Part of understanding how to do that is first understanding what engine we're showing up with. So in other words, I need to understand Mm. that if I'm low on adaptability, when the environment starts changing around me outside my control, it's going to feel difficult for me. And I need to know that. I need to know where my engine's going to start to feel a little friction so I can understand where my my friction points points are going to be so I can start understanding how to move through an environment more successfully. Um, But it is almost entirely a mental game. And this is what SEAL training does. SEAL training throws you into, and this is why a lot of us would show, show up at SEAL training. We say, well, look, look at the, the top physical dudes and they all quit, right? It's because they're going to throw you into environments where, I mean, it feels like there's nothing left. You can't get any more tired. You can't get any colder. It feels like you're going to literally die, right? And you keep pushing through. And the way you do that is you start using your your brain in ways that you can start really stepping through that piece by piece. And that's the real secret to SEAL training. But it's also, in essence, the secret to life in terms of making it through uncertain, challenging environments. When you talk about knowing those attributes, my guess is that there are some of these that weigh heavier on the decision-making competency than than others. Yes. Do you notice some yes. of those? Um, that, that and those up? are really the mental acuity attributes. So in the book, I talk about five categories. I grit, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. Uh, just by the way, one of the leadership attributes is decisiveness. Okay. And and the reason why it is a leadership attribute is because, and, and, and by decisiveness as an attribute, it's not about making decisions. Um, because again, if we think about making decisions, decision-making is a skill that can be taught. You can teach someone how to make better decisions. Decisiveness adds an element of efficiency and speed to that process, right? So in other words, the the best leaders have a way of making decisions with the sense of element uh, or with an element of efficiency and speed. That goes back to these mental acuity attributes. And these mental acuity attributes are uh, situation awareness, compartmentalization, task switching, and learnability. And so the reason why these feed into a a decisive process or even a decision-making process is a little bit more rapid is because it's how our brains basically deconstruct the world around us. All right. So situation awareness is in essence, our ability to notice things about our environment. Okay. Those of us who are really high on situation awareness, we notice a lot of things. Okay. We're almost hyper vigilant in some ways. And so, so we're taking in a lot of information. Compartmentalization is really the key here because compartmentalization allows the individual to say, okay, Based on everything I'm seeing right now in my environment, what are my priorities? What's that list look like? And what do I need to focus on right now? And then once I pick something, I focus on that until it's complete. And then I task switch to the next thing and focus on that until it's complete. And I task switch to the next thing. And as I'm going through that process, my learnability is kicking in because I'm I'm taking constant assessment whether or not my last action is working or do I need to change action. So 
So decision-making becomes a mental game. It's almost an external expression of this internal processing that our brain is making, where we're taking all of our environment. We're saying, okay, out of everything that, that I see right now, what do I understand? Let's prioritize what I understand. Let's focus on the number one priority. Do that. Let's pull back out again, ask the question again, pick our next number one priority, focus on that and do and, and make decisions that way. And so, and so that's how I describe the decision-making process and the decisiveness attribute in kind of attribute way. Uh, it all stems from this, the way your brain can process the world. So some people are not necessarily going to be adept at yeah. doing that without work or training. What, what can someone focus on who wants to get better at that level of decision-making yeah. First thing someone can focus on is managing their autonomic arousal. So in other words... Yeah, you said that earlier. What yeah, the heck so, does that mean? Uh, so we have to, so our, our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system has two parts, a sympathetic and a parasympathetic. Okay, sympathetic is really our action-oriented system. It's It kicks in when we're doing things, especially when we're under stress and challenge. We start to get cortisol hits and adrenaline and things like that. It's okay. the very active okay. part. When we're really in high sympathetic response, we're getting we're getting a lot of cortisol, getting a lot of adrenaline. We're moving through what we need to move through at a higher at a higher stress level, um, but it's also a little bit more destructive to our system. In other words, it's a, I shouldn't say destructive; it's hard on our system. So, so to counter that, we have our parasympathetic system, the parasympathetic system known as the rest and digest system. Okay, shift into parasympathetic. That's when we're, our body's recovering. Okay? Yeah, we're, yeah. Instead of instead of cortisol, for example, we're making DHEA, which is kind of rebuilding and 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 um and regenerating. As we go into autonomic arousal, autonomic arousal is really as we as we as we start to get anxious and fear starts to enter our system, our amygdala starts to tickle and our autonomic arousal goes up. Okay, as our autonomic arousal goes up, our sympathetic response goes up, and our our amygdala starts to sense more and more, more and more threat. The higher that goes, the more we head into what's called amygdala hijack. Okay, what does that mean? That means that as that autonomic arousal goes up, our frontal lobe, conscious thinking mind, is actually starting to go offline. All right, to the point where if we go, if we are if into massive fear, we're actually our conscious mind is almost totally offline, and we're just going without. We're, we're acting without thinking. Okay, so we're, we're basically we're mm-hmm. basically. This is the idea of touching a hot stove, all right, and immediately you pull your hand away, okay? We don't have to think about pulling our hand away. Our, our brain immediately says threat, pull your hand away. It doesn't wait for our logical conscious mind, okay? But but in environments of high stress, right, our arousal is going to go up, and automatically as we start to get more stressed and more anxious, our conscious mind is start to go, go offline. And so what we have to start understanding how to do is bringing our anxiety levels down, bringing that frontal lobe back online because it's only through our frontal lobe and our conscious mind that we can actually start decision-making and processing our environment. Um, we can do that several ways. You can do that. There's, there's, there's visual tools you can use to bring down your stress and anxiety. There's, there's um, breathing techniques you can do. Once you bring that autonomic arousal back down, you then begin to ask questions about your environment that allow you to help start helping step through it. Okay. First question automatic is, what about this do I understand? <laughs> that list might be small, yeah. right? It might be like one or two things. <laughs> Again, what sure. you're doing is you're picking focus points, all right? And then you say, okay, from that list, what do I focus on in this moment? This is how I, I, I kind of almost call this uh, adjusting your horizons, right? So in other words, you're, you're picking a focus point that's meaningful to you and you're moving to that. And then what's happening is as soon as you hit that, you're generating a, a reward system in your brain. You get a dopamine reward for that which allows you to come back and say, okay, what's my next horizon? Let me give you an example uh, from SEAL training. Okay, SEAL training, again, like I said, you run around for hours and hours with boats on your head and on the beaches of Coronado, uh, especially during Hell Week in the middle of the night. I can remember during Hell yeah. Week at one point, we're, we're running on the beach with our boats on our head. We've been doing it for hours, right? And I don't know what god-awful time it was. We hadn't slept. And we're running along a, a, a sand berm just along the beach. And I remember being miserable, and I said to myself, oh, man, okay, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the end of this berm getting to the end of the berm. And that's what I did. I just focused and I got to the end of the berm. What I did without knowing it is I just picked a horizon, all right? And I moved, and as soon as I got to the end of that berm, I was like, oh, cool, okay. And I gave myself, unbeknownst to me, of course, until I studied the neuroscience later on, I gave myself a dopamine reward, which which allowed me to pick a new horizon. And I picked a new horizon and moved to that. Those horizons that you mm. pick are, are entirely up to you in terms of duration and, and length and what they are. So for example, some guys will say, well, yeah. I just... I just thought about making it to the next meal. Whereas other guys, like you're freezing in the surf zone, sometimes like I'm just going to count to 10, right? That's my horizon, right? So yeah. So in 
in any challenging, uncertain environment in terms of moving through it, it's going to be about understanding your environment into to a, at least a small degree so you can pick a horizon, you can move to it, you can generate a reward in your in your brain and your neuro and your biochemistry. You can come back out and do it again. You start stepping through. And this is really these are micro decisions that you're making as you move through, which are very effective, especially during deep and challenging stress. Yeah, I wasn't aware of the neuroscience behind it, but I did that during um, Ironman mm-hmm. triathlons. So mm-hmm. no matter how fit you are, you, something's yeah. going to go wrong. You know, either, you know, you get cramps, you get blisters on your feet, you know, it's hot, you're sweating too much, you know, what they didn't have pretzels at the last aid station. Like there's always something that's just, <laughs> there's always something that you go, oh my gosh, I could quit. I would set little markers, you know, and um, in the swim, it's hard because you can't, you don't have any visual yeah, cues. Right. So it, I would just count st- mm-hmm. strokes and then I would like think of a number and sometimes it'd be like a fun number. Like, you know, what's my address? Okay. So then I'm going to count strokes up to my yeah. house number. Or whatever, like just just so it wasn't just counting a hundred strokes and then counting a hundred strokes again and then counting a hundred strokes again forever. Um, you're like, oh well, I'm gonna count uh, one thousand four yeah. strokes. Yeah, something what, that's meaningful. You know, whatever to you. it happened yeah, to be. That's right. Well, what you're doing then, it, what you're doing effectively, what you were doing is you were practicing compartmentalization, because this is what that this is what compartmentalization yeah. is and and what it means is you're basically you're you're chunking your environment, you're setting and picking horizons that you move to. You're creating dopamine rewards when you do it, and you're up to, and then you're that that allows you once you accomplish that goal to do it again. And this is the way we can practice it. Man, this is what frustrates me with what my industry does is, uh, you know, in the financial planning industry, the the entire value proposition is we're going to help you meet your goals. Well, like goals are mm-hmm. a tool to get you somewhere that you want to be. Goals are not bigger than the goal. Yeah, yeah. the goal is not. For the sake of having right. the goal, like you should have goals, but the, the, the goals are for the purpose of compartmentalization and they can be really small yes. and silly. Yeah. You know, it can be to the tune of I'm going to count 100 wow. swim yeah, strokes absolutely. and I'm, and I'm going to make it there. So it could be, I'm going to save, you know, whatever number, of, this amount of money this year. If that's the only thing you've got going to save, you know, a hundred thousand dollars this year or whatever it is. Yeah, you're not going to end up anywhere and you're not going to stick with it and you're going to quit. Um, but I'm counting the swim strokes so that I can be yes. an Ironman, so that I can finish this long, hours-long yeah. race. I'm I'm setting the goal of saving $100,000 this year so that I can do something yes. else. Yeah. Um, and it's not so I can buy the house or so I can start a business or so I can do that. Because even those things, although they're more complex goals, um, have they have to be attached to something that's more meaningful. Well, they're than too them. big. It's, this, is, this, has is, to... this is kind of, the, you can't eat the whole elephant, right? And, and there's the saying at SEAL training, yeah. especially during Hell Week, and Hell Week starts on a Sunday, it ends on Friday. The saying is, if you think about Friday on Monday, you will quit, okay? You're not going to make it through. You can't, I didn't even think about Friday until Friday morning, right? Because you're always having to take it to bite-sized elements. <laughs> yeah. It's too big. I remember uh, talking to a guy at one of my talks and he was, he came up, he said, you know, Rich, I was, I was I was formerly obese. I was just super overweight, and he was a bar- he was a marathon runner by the way by that time. And he said, and he, and he and he became a marathon runner. I said, listen, tell me what did like how did you do it? What did you do? He said, well, the first thing I did when I made a decision, the first thing I did is I said, okay, I'm going to order a pair of running shoes. Right, step number one. Right, mm-hmm. running shoes show up. Oh, cool. Okay, um, tomorrow morning I'm going to put the running shoes by my bed. Gets up, the running shoes are by his bed. The next morning is I put on the running shoes and walk to my front door. That's what he did. Next day, he walked out of his front door to his mailbox. Next day, he walked from the mailbox to the end of the end of the street. Next day, from the end of the street to the end of the neighborhood, whatever. Slowly, over the course of days and weeks, began to slowly start running, then jogging. He ended up being a marathon runner, okay? He started by ordering a pair of running shoes. That was his very first goal, all right? So what you're saying is so true. Mm. Um, you know, he, he said I, his goal, his overall goal was to run the marathon, just like it might be someone to, to buy the house or, or get the retirement home or whatever. But you have to chunk it down because if you don't chunk it down, you're not creating reward systems that'll. Yeah, and if you sit there and go marathon, marathon, marathon every day, especially when you're not in a position to even you can't even run, you can't even run a mile. You know, then then it's it's demotivating. So that yeah, that's that's so fascinating. You know, I think that's another one of the unknown knowns, the things that we know 
uh, that we are that we're not really sure that we have to know. And as an industry, I think certain people are kind of coming coming aware and going, oh, you know what? Goals for the yeah. sake of goals was not really not really what the higher purpose of this work was. You said something a second ago that I I, I want to highlight mostly because it it helps me feel better about myself. So did we have <laughs> this? A lot of that. Yeah, I I every day. Did we air that guy? Huh. We know, okay, I didn't want to say his name, but we recorded an episode with a guy who came on and uh, we didn't air it because we didn't think he was, we didn't think it made any sense. We we're like this, I think he's yeah. full of it. One of his big messages was decisiveness is, is not that good. Yeah. And he said, well, we praise, you know, we praise people for making quick decisions, but they need to be more thoughtful and need to really take a slow approach because quick decisions can hurt. And these are all of the ways that being decisive is harmful we were kind of looking at each other we're super decisive <laughs> yeah. we're very like you know we've taken assessments that say you are the one percent of decisive people a lot of efficiency right. and speed in those decisions I yes. <laughs> have, yeah and that's our some of it is our impatient showing is we're just gonna you know i'm willing to yeah. be wrong i'm willing to make a decision and be yeah. incorrect but i'm not gonna sit here and just wait forever so i had to say that because i thought well, I, really I would say because you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Say decisiveness. And again, I would just I would agree with you. I, I disagree with this guy because what I, I think what this guy doesn't realize is everything we do is a decision. Right. And sometimes yes. and, and this would happen yes. in, in yes. combat, mm-hmm. too. Yes. sometimes the decision is to do nothing. Sometimes the decision yes. is to yes. wait. Yeah. Right. And stop. That better be a conscious pause, decision. Right? Yeah. Though. Yeah, but but and again, yeah. even you know, even you know, well, again, we're making unconscious decisions as well, all the time too. So we have to recognize those, we're, especially when we're starting to act, you know, without thinking. You know, it's like this fight or flight thing. You know, we, we're either freezing or or we're either we're either stepping in or, or freeing or fleeing. The key is also accountability. I mean, you have to buttress every decision with accountability because if you don't, you're not effectively analyzing the effects of those decisions. Right? You make a decision, you own it. You start running down that pathway and you say to myself, you say to yourself, okay, how's this working? Oh, it's not working. Okay. I'm going to make another decision, right? I'm going to change. I'm going to do, I'm going to yeah. do whatever. But everything we do is a decision. Every single thing we do, whether, whether unconscious or conscious. And I think the power in, in what you all talk about is that the more we can take control consciously of our decision-making process, the more successful, the more powerfully, the more efficiently we act as human beings. And this is how the highest performing teams operate. The highest performing teams, the masters of uncertainty, we've all gotten to a position where in the deepest, most dire, most dangerous circumstances, we manage ourselves or we're making decisions. Sometimes those decisions are as little as I'm going to count to 10 right now, <laughs> you know, but that's still a decision. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and so I think it's, you're absolutely right. Life is about making decisions and, 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 yeah, of course, sometimes decisions should be made more thoughtfully. But but again, that's going to be based on what decision it is and what type of information you're, you're, you're gathering. And the decision might be, you know what, we're going to wait for more information on this one. That's the decision. You know, so yeah. waiting on accident is yes. harmful. Waiting. Well, you know, not right now. Well, I'm not sure. Well, I don't and know. And I would almost say, you know, I, I would we'll, almost we'll say uh, that, that that's that's not even on accident as much as it's on fear. A lot of times people yeah. they delay because yeah. they they fear making a movement. They fear making the wrong movement. And um, gosh, I mean, I, I'm a real believer that, you're, you know, sometimes the sometimes the right pathway is not going to even show up until you move far enough, far enough down the pathway to see it. Right. You have to go over that next hill to see what other pathways there are, which means yeah. you have to start moving, right? Because because you're not going to figure it out unless you do, and you can't do that unless you start making decisions. In SEAL work, there's a lot of, you know, I would think fear. I mean, if somebody's not afraid, they, they maybe haven't yeah. assessed the risk, but there's got to be a lot of uncertainty. and There's, there's got to be some anxiety that goes along with that to create that fear. How do you overcome that if you are in an uncertain situation where you're having to make a decision? Yeah, the, the first way you do it is because you've built a team uh, that, ha- that that operates uh, with immense proficiency and competency. In other words, we, we, we attain mastery of some of our basic things. And the SEAL teams, it was always like shoot, move, and communicate. We, we, we master those skills of shooting, moving, communicate to the extent we don't have to think about them which means that frees up our mind to start dealing with the uncertain environment. Um, and then what we'll do is, is I think, and I think we get really good at doing this unconsciously is we'll, again, the decision-making process is first, number one, it's, okay, I'm going to collect all the information I can, or that's available to me. Okay. That's the first thing we do, whether it's a, 
a protracted decision where you're really collecting stuff, or it's a very rapid decision where you're saying, what about this environment do I understand? What information do I have available to me right now in this moment? Okay, based on that information, what's the priority list based on what I want to accomplish in this moment? Boom, 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 one, two, three. Okay, let's let's move on that first priority, all right? This process is basically buying down risk to, to a certain degree. But the other thing that you, I think you get very good at is being okay with risk, okay? We, we, ca- we often call it the 80-20 uh, rule, right? Um, we never, ever had 100% intelligence on a target, okay, ever, all right? So our whole thing was, listen, yeah. as long as we have a percent, it doesn't even have to be 80%, as long as we have enough of percentage to, to, to allow us to decide something, let's just go ahead and move, okay? A perfect example of this, and really kind of a phenomenal one, was President Obama's decision to go send our guys to go get bin Laden, right? This was... Mm-hmm. And I know this because I've, you know, again, I was not on that op. I was at the command, but I was not that op, on that op. But I know all the guys who were my friends, so I know what happened in that room. Um, this was 100% a 50-50 thing, <laughs> okay? In other words, when they were deciding whether or not to send guys, 50% of the room was saying, no, we should shoot, a, we should drop a bomb. 50% was like, I think we could, we could send, we can send guys, right? So, so what the president had to do in that moment was say, okay, 50% at, at a 50%, what do I want to do? I'm going to make a decision. And so, so all of our decisions, we basically calculate the risk to a certain degree. And we say, okay, what risk am I, am I um, accepting of? Uh, and I think in the SEAL community, you're often, depending on the mission, willing to accept higher amounts of risk than maybe the normal person. And then you mitigate those risks just by, by, you know, by really training as much as you can in, in as many things that you can anticipate without without, you know, kind of what ifing it to death. But, you know, um, a, another great example kind of in a microcosm is jumping out of airplanes. We used to jump, I mean, we, we, you know, we jumped out of airplanes all the time, right? And sometimes it'd be, you know, 22,000 feet, we'd be jumping out to do skydives in the middle of the night, you know, loaded with gear with night vision, right? And so we always used to joke, it's like, and we trained on this stuff, we knew what we were doing, we trained, we, we understood the emergency procedures, we said, okay, there's about, you know, there's about five or six emergencies that typically happen in any skydiving. So I know what those are. I know, I know what I'm going to do if that happens. Um, but there's a whole host of unknowns. And you know what? I'm just confident that when I get out there, if something happens, I'll figure it out. All right. Because at the end of the day, you're still throwing yourself out of an airplane. We always joke, like, you know, jumping out of airplanes, like committing suicide and saving your life every time. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's that intense. There's always a chance, but you do that. You say, okay, I'm just going to practice. I'm going to be, be clear on the knowns. And I'm going to be okay with the unknowns and then move. And for every single person, that percentage level is going to be different based on the environment, based on the decision, based on those who are at stake, who have, who have, have something to, to gain or lose in the environment, right? So in other words, we may not be willing to accept much risk with our family in making a decision as we might with my SEAL platoon brothers, right? I mean, depending on what it is or in a business scenario. So, so it's about weighing those percentages, but not expecting 100%. We're never going to get 100%. So we have to we have to pick the percentage of risk that we're comfortable with and go with that. I love that. Um everything's yeah. risky, you know. It, not everything is jumping out of a plane risky, but everything is risky. There's a risk to not jump right. out of the plane, yeah. you know. There's a investing is risky, not investing is risky. Starting a business is risky, not starting a business is risky. Joining the seals is risky, not joining yeah. the seals is risky. What would your life have been like if you didn't do that? Um I, re- I learned a lot. You have incredible insights, Rich. Uh, I appreciate you being here, sharing them with us. We got to get you out here because you've got something um, on your calendar. Where can people find you and uh, get more in tune with the work that you're well, doing? Thank Thanks for having me. I, uh, theattributes.com is where, where all of our stuff is. And um, and they can visit that. They can see some assessment tools for, for measuring their attributes. We're putting together a nice a Masters of Uncertainty journey. If someone wants to go on that journey, they can start coming going down that road. They can figure out the book. Get me on social media and all that stuff. But I, uh, boy, that went fast. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the conversation with both of you. So thank you for having me. Rich, thanks so much for being here. You know, I'm not sure if I've had a discussion that had more takeaways than that discussion. There were a lot. There were, <laughs> there were a lot. If I had to boil it down, I would say that my takeaway is around building that mental acuity and focusing on situational awareness, compartmentalization, tasks, switching and learnability. Doing that can help that mental acuity 
and looking at how you avoid that amygdala hijacking using breathing exercises and thought exercises to avoid that where your amygdala takes over and you're just in fight or flight and allowing that frontal lobe to to do the decision making and i think if you're situationally aware you're able to compartmentalize things you're able to focus on the task at hand and able to sort of learn what you're supposed to learn from those you can prevent that amygdala hijack that he was talking about autonomic arousal not a phrase i'd ever heard before no my biggest takeaway was on compartmentalization it wasn't necessarily an entirely new idea but it was presented in a way that was um fresher and allowed me to take away more from it. So when we are making decisions, we can compartmentalize those in those big choices or big goals into smaller decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is to, to frame that in in the sense that it's an attribute right, instead of like a skill. Yeah, uh, it was really interesting. Like that's it's not something I mean, yes, you can get better at it, but it's something that you should be doing. You should be someone who is compartmentalizing. That's helpful instead of saying, oh, well, should we compartmentalize this skill to this decision? Right. You know, thinking of it that way is like something you do instead of who you are, I think is uh, to minimize it. So that was a big help for me. And I, I'm already thinking of how I'm going to implement that. And when we make big decisions, instead of trying to like solve it all at once and make all of the choices Bite-sized at pieces. once, it's... Well, what, what is the, what are the, what's the one decision I would have to make to start down this road? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really helpful. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.